Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Good morning, Mzanzi and the world. I am Buitumelo Masipa and I work as a communications officer at Section 27. And today I'll be hosting this episode of the Climate Justice Podcast. Our discussion today is titled Suffocated by the Air We Breathe, A Tale of Two Pandemics. With four exciting and considered guests, in this episode we'll be discussing the impact of climate change on health, honing in on the consequences of poor quality air on population mobility and mortality. The association between quality of an individual's environment and health is well-documented concern, articulated by experts on climate change and advocates for climate justice. Research extensively points to air pollution as a health hazard. Over time, as air quality standards have dropped due to uncontrolled pollution and harmful environmental practices, the morbidity rate of populations living in unclean environments has worsened. Respiratory health is a primary health problem associated with air pollution, seconded by increasing cardiovascular diseases and cancer rates. While the consequences of air pollution remain well known, inadequate efforts to clamp down on industrial culprits have allowed the problem to go unchecked. In February 2021, air quality standards in South Africa recorded at the worst in this century. The presence of sulfur dioxide, particularly in the country's Highfeld region, alarmed communities who reported smelling an egg-like odour. The incident was related to emissions from the Sassel plant in Mpumalanga. Activists stationed near the plant in Secunda Bay had repeatedly tried to signal the alarm to get activities of the plant regulated. Many South African residents, especially those located in areas where industrial activities are high and have sought to raise public attention to the effects of air pollution on individual health and the evidence that links air pollution to the prevalence of diseases like asthma, sinusitis, particularly among children and those living with comorbidities. However, a fundamental challenge for environmental law globally and in South Africa is the inability to effectively deter environmental crimes with the enforcement of legal mechanisms. The enforcement of a minimum emission standard is persistently weak in South Africa. Local activists persist with campaigns to the Ministry of Environmental Affairs to enact improved regulations to reduce emissions and impose stronger sanctions on companies that fail to comply. This episode promises to offer a robust and dynamic conversation on the case of air pollution in South Africa. Joining us today in this episode, we have James Erlam, a senior lecturer at the Primary Healthcare Directorate at the University of Cape Town, Faculty of Health Sciences. James is also the chair of the Climate, Energy and Health Special Interest Group at PHASA, Public Health Association of South Africa. James is a teacher, researcher and advocate for mitigating climate change and improving public health by means of healthy energy and lifestyle choices. Welcome, James. And by way of introduction and getting to know you better, can you tell us what have you learned about yourself during the hard period of the national lockdown? Great. Well, thank you very much for that welcome and for this opportunity. So I live in Cape Town um, with my family and I have been working remotely since about March last year. Faculty of Health Sciences uh, was closed and then is now open to a limited extent. So during that time, I have been working, teaching, meeting, learning the importance of a good work-life balance. So I think I've always quite enjoyed working at home, but this does force you to be more disciplined about 
the time when you work and taking those breaks when you need them and enjoying um, the opportunities to get out and exercise. Yeah, I just really have appreciated having a home, having family support, having my dogs around. And I think um, <laughs> the feeling is mutual. <laughs> they enjoy having me around. Um, yeah, it's really just taught me how fragile life is and you know how precious and how important it is to savor every moment and to help others achieve the highest quality of life too. So thank you again for this opportunity. Thanks, James. Mm. Also joining us today, we have Thomas Mnguni, who is a groundwork community activist. He is one of the co-founders of the Great Middleburg Residents Association, which focuses on service delivery and socioeconomic issues. He's also a founding member of the Freedom of Expression Network, which works closely with the Freedom of Expression Institute. This organization aims to protect people from abuse and illegal arrests, especially during protest action. He has also founded the High Halt Environmental Justice Network, which has a different community organization as members. Thank you, Thomas, for being with us today. The question I have for you today is what's one thing the pandemic has taught you about life? Uh, I think for me, uh, just maybe uh, to sum it up, uh, it has taught me the most important thing, how time is valuable in, in our day-to-day life. We, we, we go to work all the time, Sometimes you spend 30, 40 minutes idling, but then when you're working from home, you will begin to realize how the 30 minutes is important in, in your entire life. Mm-hmm. But it, it has also given me an opportunity to reflect on the inequalities we have in the country. So we begin to realize that for for years, we've, we've been seated with a lot of community people who are really poor and whilst we will continue with our lives as normal whilst government continues with business as usual people are going hungry on a daily basis now with the pandemic because it didn't choose it affected the rich and the poor on the same level all of a sudden we saw government trying to come up with stimulus to assist people because they're not going to work they're trying to come with an approach to make sure that people do not sleep hungry, which is something that should have happened long time ago so that we address the inequalities of this country. So it exposes us to the levels of inequality uh, we have as a country and as a nation. So that was one thing um, I picked up. And it also showed us that if there is a will, we can deal with that. But because there's no political will, nothing is happening right now. And then finally, last but certainly not least, we also have Tandile Chinyavani joining us today. Tandile, please introduce yourself. Good morning and thank you for having me. I am a climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace and Being Climate. And I write about issues related to public health and climate change. Yeah. Okay, let's start unpacking today's topic. Now, James, can you explain what are some of the impacts of climate change on health and health systems broadly? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, That's a very broad question, but essentially climate change impacts human health by amplifying environmental risks. So these risks include air pollution, obviously more allergens in the air, uh, disrupted ecosystems, uh, water quality, disrupted water and food supplies, and more extreme weather events like heat waves and floods and powerful tropical storms, a kind of 
events that often make the headlines. And uh, the WHO has pointed to particularly climate-sensitive health impacts like malnutrition, which is already chronic and severe in many parts of the world, infectious diseases, so malaria and dengue fever transmitted by uh, mosquitoes are a key one, asthma, uh, cardiorespiratory diseases, and then obviously the mental health burden of the disruption to people's livelihoods. Mm. These are all prevalent and growing climate health impacts. And obviously these impacts in place a huge pressure on health services as we've seen with the COVID pandemic. Um, so in the short term, emergency responses to, for example, flooding or people's homes being destroyed, um, outbreaks of infectious diseases or malaria, and then in the long term as well, the impact of cardiorespiratory health on people living with chronic conditions, uh, diabetes, all of those increase the patient load yeah. over time. And then you also have the direct damage of storms or extreme weather events on health facilities, and then the indirect disruption you know, of everything that goes into health services. So water supply, electricity, pharmaceutical, uh, supply lines, you know, food, transport, all of these can be severely disrupted um, in an um, emergency situation. Yeah, so those are just um, some of them. And, um, you know, the experience of countries worldwide is that one needs to be planning for that and making our health system more resilient and adapted to the increasing frequency of such events under climate change. Thanks, James. Thanks for that answer. And can you maybe just give us a bit more, you know, of an explanation about the connection between climate change, air pollution, and then the harmful health consequences? Yeah. So, you know, one of the main effects of climate change is increasing uh, global temperatures. Under extreme and prolonged heat waves, we see particular increase in the formation of ozone at the ground level and ozone is one of the products of uh, air pollution that is really harmful to cardiovascular and respiratory health uh, and then when temperatures are hot people uh, use more air conditioning and so they're using more energy and if that energy is coming from dirty sources that in turn increases the air pollution from those sources. Mm. We also see, and we're familiar um, with this in Cape Town, is that high temperatures in the summer combined with dry and windy conditions increase the chance of wildfires and the direct smoke inhalation and the indirect impact on people's agricultural land. And then we also see prolonged droughts from um, heat waves leading to more airborne dust. Mm. So again, contributing to air pollution. So air pollution and climate change through the increase in temperatures are, are linked. And we know already that um, the research shows that people exposed to air pollution are also more susceptible to conditions like the COVID um, pandemic. So data coming out from India now uh, shows that people exposed to long-term um, air pollution are much more likely to die from COVID 
um, than those living in cleaner, less polluted environments. So all of that shows that air pollution, um, cleaning up air pollution, has important short-term effects in yeah. terms of people's respiratory and cardiovascular health and also important long-term effects in terms of mitigating climate change. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, James. The way you've described it, it really just kind of gives a really good picture of, of really how climate change, air pollution, and then the harmful air cons- um, health consequences all relate. Um, yeah, thank you for putting it that way, and it's very clear how you've put it. And I'm just wondering, you know, for people who are first encountering the subject through this conversation, maybe if you have any insights that you can share with us on how air pollution is measured and, you know, what measures are considered toxic. And in South Africa, how is our air quality faring with other developing nations? Well, um, I know that there are sort of eight key air pollutants that are are measured. Um, So we have ozone, which I mentioned. We have particulate matter. So those are tiny microscopic particles that uh, get into people's lungs and that can really um, impact them very severely. Um, We also have the toxic metals like uh, lead and um, mercury and all of those have effects on lungs, hearts, um, our brains, uh, general inflammation in the body, and even um, fetal development. Mm. I don't know the exact levels um, that are considered safe. Apparently, the minimum emission standards for those um, uh, pollutants, the eight of them, um, are not very strictly controlled they are weak compared Mm. to the who recommended uh, levels for air pollution and we also know unfortunately that the enforcement of those emission standards um, is inadequate so we in a situation where we have as we know in the pumalanga high felt you know some of the most polluted air in the world with a dysfunctional air quality monitoring system and um all of that we're starting to see um, has Im- severe impacts on people's morbidity and mortality, particularly the most vulnerable, you know, those with pre-existing conditions, those directly exposed people with poor access to health services. So this really is an important climate and environmental justice issue and why uh, we are raising our voices in support of the High Court challenge um, against the department in the deadly air case. Hmm. So as James has been explaining to us, air quality is important to health. I know that there are human rights that emphasizes. Tandile, what are some of the specific constitutional rights associated with access to clean air and who is responsible for safeguarding these rights? Well, the most important of these rights is actually enshrined in our constitution and section 24 of the Bill of Rights. And that would be the right that everyone has to an environment that is safe and free from harm and for present and future generations. So it is mainly the responsibility of the Department of Forest, Fisheries and Environment to uphold this right as a department that is 
dedicated in its mandate to the environment. Um, mm. And so Greenpeace Africa has been placing a lot of pressure on this department and specifically the minister, Barbara Creasy, to ensure that areas, especially high priority areas in Bumalanga and some areas in Limpopo where mining activity and as well as power generation activity has really caused detriment to the public health there through polluting the air. Um, mm. Thanks, Tandilian. And, and, you know, these are very serious concerns that, you know, Greenpeace is raising and I suppose all climate justice activists are fighting for. And, you know, while there isn't a lot of like epidemiological evidence around um, the connection between death and air pollution, but just speaking broadly, when someone is believed to have died suffering health impacts from deadly air, which we know is, you know, can be a reality. Fundamentally, then who becomes liable in these instances when the failure to safeguard the right to quality air results in death? Well, I think maybe let me begin by saying that um, for years, the research has been there. We've made the link between health and air quality. I'm dating as far back as the 1600s. Um, And now as we come closer into the century that we're in, we find that people are um, experiencing an increased number of morbidities that are related to air quality. And most recently, we found out that besides asthma, bronchitis, cardiovascular disease and stroke, that there is also a connection between eyesight and um, the degradation of eyesight and air quality. So as you mentioned, it can be quite difficult to attribute these specific conditions to air quality, but it's a bit easier with bronchitis Mm. and asthma but when it comes to things like cardiovascular disease as well as stroke you know it's quite challenging because we live in a a country where these non-communicable diseases are on the rise especially because of obesity and conditions such as diabetes Mm. but when we can see that there is a prevalence of these other easier to um, attribute conditions such as asthma and bronchitis then it becomes a little easier to to attribute it to this so um, those who are doing the science are factoring in these limitations and um, possible other uh, impacts that might be or rather externalities that may be related to this. But if you can see, the Center of Environmental Rights has released a report where they attributed specifically to ESCOM that there were a number of deaths caused by ESCOM's um, activities. And Greenpeace Africa itself is also um, finds that about 3,300 deaths are caused a year as a result, of, or premature deaths rather, are caused as a result of air quality in South Africa. Sure. Those are such startling findings. Um... Sure. Thomas, you know, like Tandile is saying, you know, more than just suspecting that, you know, people are dying prematurely, there are those numbers, you know, that indicate, you know, people are being affected and impacted by worsening and toxic levels of, of air quality. Yet generally, it's like Tandile has alluded to, it's not easy to prove air pollution is the driving cause of premature death. But is there any way to determine um, the extent of this, perhaps whether there are indicators that suggest that people are dying due to poor air quality? Uh, I think one needs to acknowledge that it, it is difficult to determine that, but uh, solely because um, our, our health system, our public health, private health, do not provide relevant statistics. And, and uh, that's one of the key elements that we need to note, which groundwork and uh, some of our community partners have been raising with the health department to say, uh, for instance, we, we, we need to know how many people, for instance, have, have asthma, you know, are, are they getting adequate treatment? So one, we don't have those stats. But um, 
based on my interaction with different community people, uh, my understanding of um, their health system. It is interesting to note if you meet people and say, I came to live in Middleburg for the past five, 10 years, and all of a sudden, uh, the entire family, we now have respiratory problems. Mm. But when we're out of Middleburg, for instance, going to the low field around Nelspreet or Bush, we, we, we don't seem to be even dependent on medication. We, we can live our normal lives. But mm. when we come back to Middleburg or Whitbank, then we had to get back to medication. So one begins to pick up that most definitely there is a problem in this area. But then also um, when we interacted with some of the health professionals, especially those within Middleburg and Whitbank, so we had like your private GPs, we had uh, doctors from the public, two, two public hospitals, nurses from the clinics, they all spoke to the same trend to say over the past few years, we have seen an increased number of cases which are linked to air pollution and health. So uh, I don't think we need to do further research. I think we should be focusing on how do we deal with, with the issue. I think there's a lot of work that's been done, for instance, by the Public Health Association of South Africa. Uh, we've seen a, a lot of um, health studies being done, even in the Val, which is also a priority area. But we haven't seen specific solutions to deal with a problem. So we can spend all the money we have on doing further research, yeah. but that research, if it doesn't address the problem at hand, then it's a waste of our resources. Thank you, Thomas. You raise a very good point there. You know, besides just doing research and putting money in, and investment into the research, but actually to then tackling the problem, I think that's what, you know, climate justice activists are advocating for. As applicants of the deadly air case, Thomas, can you give us examples in SA and regionally where air pollution has impacted health and the well-being of people and how is the state responding to the air quality crisis? I live in, in Middleburg and uh, Middleburg uh, is part of um, the high field priority area. Now, I think what we need to note is that the area was declared a priority area because of the high levels of pollution. and by law, it required that government come up with a clear intervention or implementation plan to deal with um, the toxic or hazardous uh, levels of pollution in order to protect people's health. Now, to be frank, uh, it's easy for me to talk about what I experience on the field, what I see other people feeling. We've, we've got mothers who have to take care of small kids because of respiratory problems. You, you, you visit schools, you, especially during winter, you see the level of absenteeism, both from the teachers and the school kids because of that. We, you, you were asking earlier about what other impacts do we see? We see a lot of people unable to go to work, which means when people are sick, we also lose those hours of production, um, whether it be in a mine or at a retail shop. But if somebody is going to be absent because of air pollution, then we're losing those hours of productivity. But I mean, from, from a personal perspective, um, I had two kids, a boy and a girl. And both of them, when they were growing, they had issues with asthma. So except for spending time taking them to the doctor, I also had to spend money, which I didn't have because I was unemployed at that time, 
So I also need to spend money to make sure that they get medication. So this is a common trend uh, you see. And when you go to the public health system, just like we saw during COVID, our public health system does not provide adequate services to deal with most of these pandemics, to deal with most of these diseases. So it falls back on one as an individual to make all the necessary means to ensure that your kid gets the best medical attention out there. So if you interact with uh, different people, whether you go into a clinic or a hospital, you will get this frustration to say, I don't have a choice, I have to come here. You get this frustration that I can't go to work today because I have to take care of my kid. I can't leave my kid alone. So these are some of, of, of the impacts you, you pick up when you're on the field. But what is interesting is that um, government is fully aware of, of this. I remember when they held the, the, the equality in 2017, different community people, we converged and we had a protest and we presented them with a memorandum. They acknowledge that there is a problem. They know that they have to deal with it. The question is, are they willing to deal with it? Hmm. And, and from your judgment of the response, do you consider that government is dealing with it adequately? And is there that political commitment? No, government is not dealing with it. Uh, hence, um, it was very important uh, for Groundwork and them to, with the support of CR as our legal advisors, to initiate the case, uh, which we now currently refer to as the deadly air case. And um, the emphasis of the case, I think one is to make sure that the court orders what is currently happening, the high levels and the failure of government to deal with air pollution is in direct violation of Section 24 of the Constitution, which speaks to the right to health and well-being of, of residents and citizens. Uh, the second order uh, which we're asking the court to make is for government and the minister specifically to implement regulations that, that will be used by all so that we are in a position to follow specific rules, specific guidelines to deal with air quality issues and to make sure that there is proper and adequate um, enforcement uh, with regards to that. And lastly, what is important about the case is that the deadly air case also speaks about how we transition away from fossil fuels to alternative energy models, which not only speaks about having access to energy, but also speaks about the health of the people, the well-being, and how we protect the environment. So the deadly air case is not just, it's just about saying the air is dirty, you need to act but it says, how do we then move away from fossil fuels without compromising the livelihoods of the people, without compromising the basic services that people need access to. We don't want to compromise access to water. We don't want to compromise access to energy. We don't want to compromise people's access to food. In fact, we want to come out of this case having a plan to make people's lives better off. Thank you for getting into you know some of the aspects of this case and, and hopefully in the case will be a successful one to ensure the protection of people's right to a clean environment and air quality. Tandile, what are policies and regulations that are missing in South Africa, in South Africa's legislation to effectively deal with air pollution? We've heard about, you know, the kind of lack of enforcement of existing policies, but within those policies, is it something that's lacking? 
Definitely. And I'd say one of the most important things that's uh, lacking right now is the strength of our minimum emission standards. Um, so as you may know, April 1st, um, 2020, the Minister or Department of Forest, Fisheries and Environment actually weakened the minimum emission standards in favor, it seems, of carbon measures such as um, CECIL and ESCOM so that sure. they would be more easily able to comply with the standards um, as opposed to rather enforcing the legislations and making sure that these carbon measures retrofit technology <clears throat> that would actually mitigate the levels of pollution in these, these areas. And for years, civil society has been calling for a plan to be established for these priority areas to reduce emissions in these areas. As far back as the 2000s, they have identified these areas as priority areas as far as air pollution is concerned. But I think it's uh, very important that our department start to legislate and apply more stringent measures to um, the rate at which they're granting mining licenses and emissions licenses in these areas. It's actually quite concerning how they continue to put these people's lives at risk. And just to echo Thomas's statements about the quality of health that people, or how people have noticed deterioration in their health since they've moved to these areas can definitely attest to that. There are many families that were perfectly healthy before they moved to these areas. I myself in 2019 worked briefly um, for a carbon major and traveled to Secunda and it was appalling um, how quickly my body reacted to the air quality in that area. After just spending a night there, I began to cough up sputum and sure. for me that was quite a, a really began to understand the severity of the air quality problems in that area. You really don't grasp how bad it is until you've been there, um, especially in contrast to the same year I traveled to China, which is an area renowned in the world for how poor their air quality mm. is. And still there, I was able to spend a week there before I started coughing up sputum the way that I did in Secunda. And so there are platforms such as IQA, and you can compare the air quality in different cities. And Secunda, and specifically, I can speak to Krelumpumalanga, they surpass those areas um, in China in terms of air quality. So that is completely shocking to hear what you're saying now that some of the major culprits were actually given a free pass to continue polluting and, you know, without any kind of consequences on their, on their businesses and their impact on people's health. I think it's, it speaks volumes to the kind of whether the Ministry of Environmental Affairs is actually considering this as a, is a serious issue and an issue that's even fatal to some people, you know, and then recognizing deadly air with the urgency it deserves. How do we then begin to respond and mobilize around these issues discussed today? And I'll allow each of you maybe to give an answer and share with us um, what are your perspectives on how this issue needs to be dealt with and how do we mobilize around it? To me, just just that I think for for us it's it's very important to note that um, except for the Department of Environment, Fisheries and Forestry. The, the, the most important player in this is the Department of Health. Uh, solely because um, to date we, we haven't seen them engaging with issues around equality and health. But also we, we haven't seen any, any specific interventions, for instance, in public health institutions wherein if I have asthma and then I will maybe be taken to a separate place and say, okay, 
we've got expertise to deal with the respiratory issues in this hospital so this is how we need to do uh, if, if you see one one of the things which i think made the health institution to be in a position to respond to hiv aids was that i think there was strong campaigning there was strong mobilization and the department finally uh, said um, we, we need a specific intervention in the health system to deal with this and at that time at least we saw the numbers stabilizing uh, we, we saw testing being done in, in huge numbers but it, it provided some clarity as to how then do we deal with HIV AIDS mm. uh, I think a, a similar approach uh, is needed in terms of how do we deal with the respiratory problems you know I, I can't just go to a clinic and be given a painkiller which normally it's painable and say this is what you need to take home i think we, we we need a dedicated team in the public health sector that will deal with respiratory issues but also from our side i think it's very important um i mean like i said i interact a lot with community people uh, as we speak um we, we've designed different modules we're doing different fact sheets so that uh, not only this should be about the legal process but the case should also be about campaigning. It's about raising awareness in, in all the communities. It's about bringing different stakeholders on board so that uh, people begin to acknowledge, but also to start responding to uh, equality. Uh, so it's for, for us, it's very important that more and more people begin to speak publicly and begin to act on equality issues. Uh, there are things we can avoid. I mean, James has uh, indicated we are a very energy intensive uh, country and individuals. So if we begin to be fully aware about our energy consumption and begin to be efficient in, in, the, in the use of electricity, we might be saving uh, or reducing some of the emissions that come out of these, these power plants. So it, it, it reaches in all aspects, not only should the responsibility lie with the people but in terms of enforcement in terms of ensuring that government acts i think the deadly act case is important so that uh, if the government doesn't act then we can go back to court and say the minister is in contempt of the court order therefore mm -hmm. the minister needs to be held accountable because we haven't seen even a single person being held accountable for all this non-compliance we see Absolutely. I think certainly the Deadly Air case is going to provide some precedents about how, you know, these issues are dealt with. Um, maybe if I can turn to you, James, what do you propose and, and as a way to begin to respond and mobilize around the issues that we've discussed today? Mm. Yeah, so as has been said, I think just using the voices that we have, you know, whether it's um, at the level of community activism within civil society organizations, uh, myself um, within the Public Health Association of South Africa, we've commented on the um, draft update of the nationally determined contribution, um, which is South Africa's climate commitments ahead of the International Climate Summit in November. And, you know, we've said very clearly there just this week that uh, we need to see health as a bottom line of climate change and that uh, while we work towards economic recovery from COVID, um, which is urgent, that we can't lose sight of 
you know, the threat of climate change, which is driving pandemics, um, which is mm. um, threatening people's health. And, you know, we're seeing that increasingly and that ultimately will impact our economy, people's quality of life and health and livelihoods. And so one of the clear demands we've made in our comments is that the health sector is included in the work of the Presidential Climate Change Commission, um, which was set up towards the end of last year, so that the health voice is there pushing for um, you know, the fullest measures to protect health from the climate threat and also to protect health from air pollution, which is imposing a huge burden right now, even by the government's own admissions in their own um, assessment of the air quality management plan, they acknowledge that. Um, and so it's about enforcing the regulations that are there and making sure that, um, that where it's not happening, that people are held to account. So it's about working together also with communities and uh, really making sure that their voices are coming out mm. and that they're supported by the evidence and hence why part of this uh, what needs to happen is to do the studies to show that there is clear evidence um, for action. I think James and, and Thomas, you've alluded very well to the need for like a collaborated approach. Tandile, I don't know if you have anything else to add um, around, you know, how we can mobilize around the, the issues that we've discussed today and, and, you know, communities get involved. Yes, I think um, civil society has done an amazing job of trying to conscientize the public as well as our government about the impact that air quality has on the public and public health. Um, but I'm really going to tie it back to the Department of Forest, Fisheries and Environment and the fact that they need to take a more prominent role in advocating for greener technology and renewable energy, seeing as though a lot of the projects that they are granting emissions licenses to and mining licenses in priority areas are geared towards energy security, supposedly. As we see uh, with that case with Tabamezi, they did not give significant consideration to the climate aspects, but that ties to, well into as well air quality. They continue to give approval to pro uh, projects that are going to affect the air quality in the region. And most recently, we're seeing with the um, Musina Makado um, Special Economic Zone, as well as um, granting or rather exempting Kapawaship um, from complying with um, an environmental impact assessment, which is a necessary and legislated part of our project proposals. So um, it's quite concerning the disregard that they seem to have for the environmental legislation that is put forward by them. And so I think it's very important that our government or other DFFE take a prominent role um, instead of just towing the party line, advocate more um, for renewable energy and the removal of those arbitrary caps that they've put on renewable energy. We really need to close our emissions gap. And in that way, by tackling climate change and those emissions that are coming from these sources, we will also be tackling air quality, seeing as though it is the same culprits that are responsible for this. Mm. Thank you so much, Tandile, for your reflections and sharing with us. As you've heard today, there's so much to consider about the impact of climate change and health, particularly with regard to poor air quality. 
The Climate Justice Coalition, as activists for climate justice, we always want to consider climate issues like deadly air with particular attention to the impacts on the most vulnerable members of our population, who we know suffer the most in terms of the consequences of climate change. And that's why it's important to frame these discussions with a human rights perspective and really begin to think about how we mobilize communities to fight the status quo on climate change. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. To all our listeners, I hope you found this discussion as informative as I did. A special thank you to our amazing guests who brought such great insights into this episode. Head over to Facebook and Instagram where you can catch up with the activities of the CJC and find more thought-provoking episodes on climate justice. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.